Seltzer Kings podcasts. I don't care if you think it's beneath your dignity, Gavin. We're doing the fart joke show. Ass. The following podcast contains Sacred Island. Watch the language. Hey, pal. Watch the gutter language. Okay, okay let's try to watch the language. There's children present. Yeah? Will you watch your ruddy language? My ears are not a toilet. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you got busted selling cocaine out of your official fire department vehicle, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 307. His name is Bum Fardo, edition of the show, where we talk about the scandal that rocked the Conk Republic to its core, meaning they made a lot of jokes in Key West. Stay tuned. The What the Hell We Thinking podcast is brought to you by Jimmy Earl's Bait Shack, who wants you to know we are definitely not a drug front. Sure, when you're looking for fine baits and lures for your flat boat trip out to the Keys, you can find places with bigger selections of stores that are not falling apart and in danger from burning down on a warm day. But that doesn't mean Jimmy Earl's is a thinly veiled cover for selling illegal drugs, and frankly, we're offended by your insinuation. Sure. We have only a very small inventory, and much of it has actually been dead for years, but you could still fish with it if you wanted. And there's no reason to assume that just because we are only open a few hours a week, we are secretly using the shop conveniently located on the water as a location to move shipments of cocaine and marijuana into the United States, and you should be ashamed of yourself for thinking that. Jimmy Earl's Bait Shack, definitely not a drug front. If you mention Key West, Florida, to most people, they'd naturally think of fishing, maybe Humphrey Bogart. But some of the people who live in Key West, including a few who help run that town, are now under arrest for allegedly adding another dimension to the city, trafficking in drugs. Fred Francis reports. The Key West fire chief had been under investigation for allegedly trafficking in cocaine. State agents say Chief Joseph Farto was selling the cocaine from the front seat of his fire chief's car. Under Florida law, vehicles used for that purpose are seized, so agents impounded Chief Farto's car. They also seized one of the wreckers used to tow the cars of other suspects, saying they have evidence the wrecker was used to transport drugs. One of those arrested was Key West City Attorney Manuel James, the son of the city police chief. Young James, charged with delivering and conspiracy to deliver cocaine, is also the community's leading defense lawyer. James and 14 others were held in $25,000 bail each, but one of the city's two bail bondsmen is in Philadelphia. The other was arrested in the drug bust, so all but one of the defendants remain in jail. The arrest produced almost a carnival atmosphere in this town of 40,000, where some spectators say it's as easy to buy cocaine as a slice of key lime pie. Fred Francis, NBC News, Key West, Florida. There was a time when I strongly considered chucking it all and just doing a Jimmy Buffett. Clothing optional Jimmy Buffett cruise! No, 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 no. I was going to take all my money and run off to the Caribbean to live on the beach and never come back to the States. I just got out of the military and I had about 35 grand in my pocket and I thought I could live off that until I got my own little beach bar up and running catered to American tourists fresh off their cruise ships and looking to slum it like a local while feeling comparatively safe. You know, that could actually work. That's what I thought. Until I started looking into what it would take to do something like that, and I discovered that even in the Caribbean, it would be nothing like the movie Cocktail, where Tom Cruise lives the idle life, pouring booze and fucking rich women. It would actually be 
you know, work. Also, it would take all of my money just to get it up and running, meaning I wouldn't be able to spend much time living the island life. So I decided not to run off to the islands. My other big idea at the time was I would take my money and invest it in a consulting business. That sounds reasonable. I would buy and train my own drug detector dog and then offer my service to the drug cartels. If my dog couldn't find their drugs they were trying to ship across the border, then neither would the customs dogs, thus ensuring their shipments got through. That sounds, you know, insane. Well, sure, to the layman, but I figured it'd be a nice little gig with very little risk on my part. I wasn't actually touching the drugs. I was simply providing a service. However, I thought about it for a minute and quickly realized that even if I did have the connections to find and work for the drug cartels, which I totally did not, the first time my dog had a bad day and they lost a few hundred grand at the border, they were likely to put a bullet in me and the dog, so I decided that wasn't for me. What these two completely true stories from what I sadly call my life have in common is this week's show topic about a singularly funny name and the Florida cocaine trade in the 1970s and 80s. It's cliche that cocaine fueled the 1970s and 80s, and you might think you know how easy it was to get blow back then, but you don't. Cocaine was effectively sold at a vending machine. If you take a vending machine to be a guy named Eddie who stood by the cigarette machine between the women's and men's rooms, and if you wanted coke, you walk up to Eddie and simply ask, do you have any cocaine? And Eddie would reply, how much you want? And you would give him 20 bucks for a couple of lines of toot, go into the bathroom, do your rails, and go back out dancing. You would repeat the process throughout the night. Everyone was doing it. Well, not everyone. I mean, my mom and dad, definitely not. And Ron and Nancy Reagan, probably not then. But other than those people, everyone was doing blow. And all that blow had to come from somewhere. Columbia. Columbia. Well, in those days, it was Peru, but I'll allow it. Weed was the primary export to the United States for much of the 50s and 60s, but in the 70s, traffickers began experimenting with smuggling small amounts of cocaine into the United States, primarily in suitcases on commercial flights. A $1,500 kilo of cocaine from Colombia, once cut and distributed, fetched upwards of 50 grand on the streets of the United States, and that meant there was big money to be made by moving it, and so began the cocaine cowboy years in Florida. It's in the 80s that most people think of when they talk about the drug years in Florida, and they tend to focus on Miami because of a certain flashy television show. And look, Miami Vice made for great television. The cars, the clothes, the bikinis, Don Johnson's yacht with an alligator on it. God damn. Damn, those were good times. But in the 1970s, it was the Florida Keys that were the entry port for the majority of all South American drugs. It started with weed and rapidly evolved into cocaine. It was an article on Reason.com which led me to this delightful tale that I'm just about to get into about a guy named Dickie Lynn, a recently released drug smuggler from the heyday, when he told CJ Sierra Mella, quote, This area has been a smuggler's paradise for as long as there's been contrabands to smuggle. Longtime Keys residents will tell you about taking John boats out as teenagers to look for square groupers, a joke term for stray bales of dope that sometimes drifted into the mangroves after drug runners threw them overboard while fleeing the Coast Guard and other authorities. Locals like Lynn soon discovered that there was an obscene amount of money to be made using their knowledge of the local waters to run pot. 
Back then, the tools of the trade were a fast boat, steady nerves, a friend with a radio scanner to keep an eye on the military and law enforcement chatter, and a roll of quarters for the payphones. You know when Jimmy Buffett says, rule my world from a payphone, Lynn asked, referring to a line from the song One Particular Harbor? That's what it was, unquote. And by 1975, Key West was essentially most Isley spaceport for the drug trade. He's not even trying to hide it, bro. People moved weed in and out of the Keys, and the local government not only turned a blind eye to what was going on, but actively assisted the smugglers in their endeavors. No one was prosecuted, and it was becoming increasingly clear that the local government was, for lack of a better term, part of it. None of this bothered the locals in the least, but you need to understand that Key West of the 1970s really was a pirate town straight out of a Jimmy Buffett song. From a 1996 article in the Sun Sentinel News, quote, To live on an island this small, you need a different psyche. A different mindset, says Ken Jenny, a former Broward County assistant prosecutor who headed the first state grand jury probe into Key West's curious view of justice. Marijuana in their mindset was no different than shrimping. Theirs is simply a, mo a different moral and legal system, unquote. Unfortunately for Key West, the rest of Florida did not work by pirate rules, and it wasn't long before Tallahassee, the state capital, took notice that Key West was doing its own thing just a little too blatantly, even for by Florida standards. Again, from the Sun Sentinel quote, in 1973, Governor Reuben Askew asked the Broward State Attorney's Office to investigate a folder full of complaints, one of which concerned open drug dealing in Key West. State Attorney Phil Shaler picked a, senior, picked a state senator to head a three-man task force to look into the matter. The team received little cooperation. One night, they found Lindberger cheese smeared into the air conditioners in their motel. An odorous warning, but hardly enough to stop their work. What they found would lead to a six-month investigation by the Florida Department of Criminal Law Enforcement, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, and the Dade County Organized Crime Bureau. Operation Conk resulted in a fistful of grand jury indictments and a roundup on September 9, 1975, of 19 alleged Key West drug dealers, unquote. The very first person they arrested was a local by the name of Joe Fardo. <laughs> of course, no one called him Joe. He had a nickname that stemmed from his childhood habit of always bumming around the local fire station so everyone in Key West knew Joe by the nickname of Bum Fardo. <laughs> Did I pick the topic for this week entirely based on the name Bum Fardo? Yes. Yes, I did. I am going to say bum farto many, many times over the next few minutes, and I'm going to laugh every time I do. You just need to accept this because I cannot change it and wouldn't even if I could. <laughs> Back to the Sun Citadel quote, Joe Fardo grew up in a wood frame house across the street from the Key West Fire Station. He idolized the fireman who gave him the affectionate name Bum. Fardo's first job was with the Lopez Funeral Home, and by the time he was 22, he was also working as a nozzle man with the Key West Fire Department. 
1964, he was named Chief. Fardo was a colorful eccentric who was usually attired in fire engine red with flashy gold chains around his neck. He was also a big fan of the Key West High School baseball team and was permitted to drive his car into the stadium and park near the left field fence. There, he would light a candle and place it on the car's fender. Steeped in witchcraft, he believed that his ritual would bring luck to the fighting conks, unquote. You see, in the 1970s, the U.S. Navy, Long the Island's biggest employer, drew down most of his forces and the Keys' economy tumbled. So the selling of weed, much of it plucked from the surrounding waters, became a way to make ends meet for a lot of people in town. And it wasn't long before Bum began to sell the sweet, sweet green, often from a bench outside his Key West fire station. And it wasn't much later that he graduated to selling cocaine, often from the seat of his fire department official vehicle, a canary yellow, red, yellow Ford with El Jefe plates purchased at a discount with money earned by selling drugs. In August of 75, an informant introduced Bum to an undercover agent who offered to trade him a diamond ring for an ounce of cocaine. Bum Fardo loved jewelry. He was constantly adorned in gold necklaces and flashy diamond rings, and waving this ring under his nose was just the sort of bait Bum Fardo couldn't resist. While that deal was in the works, we now come to the part of the story where things, you know, get a little dark. Nope, still not bored with it. The informant who set up the sting with Bumfardo was found dead, given a hot shot, a lethal injection of heroin, drain cleaner, and battery acid, and then shot twice in the head. Just to be sure. A short while later, Bumfardo finally completed his drug deal with the undercover, exchanging an ounce of cocaine for that shiny, shiny golden ring and set the stage for Operation Conk to go into action. Dozens of agents flooded into Key West disguised as, I shit you not, karate enthusiasts in town for a match, and on September 9th, 1975, the arrest began. Quoting from an August 2020 article in keysweekly.com, quote, Fardo left his house on the morning of September 9th, 1975, and sp- spotted Larry Dollar, one of the undercovers, and another agent dressed in suits. The chief realized he had been set up and threw the ring which Dollar had traded him for cocaine to the ground. Bum rushed to his car and started to drive away, but he didn't get far. Where the hell was he going to go? He was on a damn island. And he was the first arrest of Operation Conk. 28 more alleged dealers went down that week, but the headlines focused on the fire chief Fardo, city attorney Manny James, and the breakup of a crooked system of small-town corruption, unquote. Manny James, the son of the local police chief, the city attorney, and the only defense lawyer in Key West, (laughs) who, if you recall had been arrested, was also the defense lawyer for Bum and several others arrested in Operation Conk. Again, from the Sun Sentinel, quote, Agents also caught up with Manny James, Manuel Corrito, Ortega, and Artie Crespo, a previously convicted gambler. Crespo had been acquitted the night before on a weapons charge. His attorney was Manny James, and one of the men, Barbie Marion Francis, was already in jail. He was charged with murdering Titus Walters, the original informant that started this whole thing off, and would later be convicted of the crime. In a wild outburst of legal incest, Fardo, James, and the others were all bailed out by Ortega, a fellow defendant. 
and then bummed hired James to defend him against three charges of drug dealing that could send him to prison for more than 30 years, unquote. Bumfardo was charged and some attempts to delay the trials went through through various shady means, but it wasn't long before he was convicted of selling marijuana and cocaine in March of 1976. Now, these charges were felonies to be sure, but Fardo probably wasn't looking at hard time for trafficking and could probably expect a fairly light sentence as a first-time offender, particularly if he was willing to talk about his sources for the drugs. Out on bail while awaiting sentencing, Fardo told his wife he needed to go to Miami to meet a friend. He rented a car and drove out of Key West. That was the last time anyone would ever see Bum Fardo again. His wife reported him missing three days later, and a search for Fardo's rental car finally turned up the missing vehicle in late March in Miami's Little Havana with no sign of Bum Fardo. And all across Key West and the rest of the Florida Keys, white t-shirts with red lettering began to appear with the legend, Where is Bum Fardo emblazoned on the chest? Again, from the central quote, Fardo's date for sentencing was set for April 5th. Two days earlier, the Key West citizen had polled 10 Key Westers to ask if they thought he would show up for court. Two thought he would appear. Six believed he'd fled either to South America or Spain. And two believed he had met with foul play to keep him from, quote, squealing, unquote. I think a contract was put out on him and he was lured to Miami on some pretense or another and killed, said one of Fardo's fellow firemen. On sentencing day, Judge William Larner Rose asked if Fardo was in the courtroom. Hearing no answer, he declared Bum Fardo's $25,000 bail forfeited and swore out a bench warrant for his arrest. The FBI failed to find him. Rumors that he'd been seen in Costa Rica proved groundless. Time dragged on, and his wife, unable to collect on his insurance or pension, went on welfare. One report tied Fardo's disappearance to the mafia in Tampa. Other sources believed he was a victim of Colombian drug lords. Fardo's attorney and fellow defendant Manny James was acquitted of all charges. He left Key West and lived in grand style for several years in Olethra and the Bahamas. Then in the early 1980s, James was convicted in the Florida Panhandle on a single count of drug conspiracy, unquote. So, we're left with the question, pod friends. Where is Bum Fardo? Sure, the obvious answer is he either skipped bail or more likely was murdered by a smuggler connections to keep his mouth shut. That sounds almost plausible. Of course it does, but if this story were simply that, would I be doing an episode about a guy who has a funny name, which I am totally not above doing, and honestly, that's what I thought I was doing when I started researching the topic? But like with so many other stories we cover on this podcast, as you peel back the layers and get further and further down the rabbit hole, you discover that maybe the simplest explanation isn't what happened. What if? Just what if? There is more to this story. Would you like to know more? Bum Fardo was also known in Key West as El Jefe, and he was, according to some, heavily involved in the politics of Key West's notorious neighbor, Cuba. Key West has long a staging area for Cuban, for CIA-backed Cuban rebels, and the jumping-off part for the Bay of Pigs, and on the tip of the spear during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Bum Fardo was an ardent anti-communist. Again, from KeyWeekly.com, quote, An El Jefe cloaked in the red of communism sent thousands of exiles across the Florida Straits. But according to sources, Bum Fardo greeted countless hundreds of them. Bum was Key West El Jefe. Cloaked, 
in the red of his leisure suits and armed with a dedication to help Cubans suffering under Fidel Castro's rule. With his friend Arturo Coba, Bumfardo became an unofficial welcome wagon for Cuban exiles. He provided food and hydration, helped relay news of their safe arrival to family members, and arranged for medical assistance through his hospital connections. Bum helped the exiles find jobs. He helped them start a new life. Bumfardo was life support to strangers in a strange land. It's been long suspected that the CIA used drug money funded by many clandestine operations over the years, and much of that money went to anti-Castro elements in Florida. Though the exact details are hotly debated even today, it is more or less taken for granted that the early drug trade was given cover by the CIA in order to use the money for any number of dirty deeds, and since Key West was so close, it stands to reason that much of the CIA cloak smuggling went through the island well into the 1970s. Again from Key Weekly, quote, Journalist Douglas Valentine conducted an extensive investigation into Bunkin and Deacon for his book, The Strength of the Pack, The Personalities, Politics, and Espionage Intrigues That Shaped the DEA. It reveals claims that CIA-trained anti-Castro exiles infiltrated the DEA on behalf of the Tampa Mafia through Deacon to protect narco-trafficking routes that funded their operations. Deacon agents eliminated competition and facilitated drug shipments benefiting Tampa Mafia boss Santo Traficante and the CIA's war against Fidel Castro. Those actions created friction between regular DEA agents and those of Deacon. I believe this set the stage for Operation Conk. DEA agent Grayston Lynch left Key West suddenly around August of 1975. The CIA noted in secret documents that were declassified in 2004 because of internal DEA politics, he was blown and left dangling on a string in Key West. He had to leave town within 24 hours and left his informants there without calling or warning them. As a result, he lost friends, prestige with his informants, many of them Cuban exile, and his business in Key West. The timing of this series of events begs several questions. Did Grayson Lynch facilitate drug shipments to finance a CIA war against Castro? Was Bumfardo a CIA operative or informant? Did a DEA CIA turf war turn the tables on Operation Conk? Could it be that Bumfardo was not a despicable drug dealer, but rather a soldier on the front lines doing whatever he could to defeat the communist threat that lurked just 90 miles from his home? Unquote. What if, hypothetically, Bumfardo was not a corrupt, small, town drug dealer, but was in fact a key player in a CIA-sponsored drug-running operation funding black ops against Castro? That seems unlikely, but thank you. Think about it. We have a small town guy with deep connections to the Cuban exile community who goes missing in Little Havana days after being convicted on what are actually fairly minor drug charges. Is it more likely that Bumfardo jumped bail and disappeared into the islands for a life on the lam, leaving behind his wife and family, or the nascent drug cartels would whack a fairly minor player in a small town in Florida, or that Bumfardo was caught up in a web of the mafia, Cuban exiles, and the CIA, and was killed to keep his mouth shut 
after a state investigation convicted him on low-level drug sales. I'm just asking the questions. I'm only asking the questions. To which, of course, the answer is probably he was whacked by his business partners and his body dumped in the ocean like a lost bale of weed. Either way, Bumfardo is today, 40-plus years later, a legend in the Florida Keys. His fire department desk is just as he left it and on display in the Key West Fire Museum. And if you should want an original Where is Bumfardo t-shirt, it will set you back the price of a key of cocaine on today's prices. And I don't think the question today should be Where is Bumfardo? If he is alive, he'd be nearly 100 years old. So instead, we're left with Who is Bumfardo? And I would proffer, pod friends, that like after a meal of red beans and rice, there is a little Bumfardo in all of us. Bumfardo is a modern Spartacus, either a small town pirate making his way with what he's got, or a goddamn hero who gave his life to defeat communism by selling blow for the CIA and then got caught. But either way, you are Bumfardo. I am Bumfardo. We are all Bumfardos, so say it loud and proud on social media, hashtag I am Bumfardo. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. When people ask me from time to time what my podcast is about, I tell them, well, I, uh, I find these stories about strange things in history or society, and I tell you about them, and a, a lot of times there are fart jokes in them, and they think I'm kidding. Well, me and Bumfardo know the truth. For the record, I have said Bumfardo 31, 32 times in the past 25 minutes, and it's just as funny now as, I, as the first time I heard it, and you know that's damn well true. Speaking of knowing awful truths, rate and review, review the show wherever you get your pods so others can learn of Bumfardo, that's probably 35 or 36, and wonder why the hell I am talking about a drug case from 1975, and you suggest they listen to it, to which you can simply look them in the eye and say, Bumfardo, 37. You can follow the show on the social, the hell underscore podcast on Twitter and the show name on Facebook. And I would not have this story if it wasn't for CJ Sierra of reason.com who for I got the rights for a libertarian rag is an awesome guy and loves a fart joke, Dungeons and Dragons and criminal justice reform. You can keep the fart jokes flowing by donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast. All the shows are ad free and early for just a buck. And if you get a few dollars more, you can get a recording of Gavin floating air biscuits in the engineer booth that he doesn't know I've made. All of the shows are at whatthehellpodcast.com, and we are a proud member of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network, who honestly did not expect a bum fardo joke 38 times when they signed us up. So, for me, Dave, you know what that sound means, Bledsoe, producer, oh my god, he's had beans, Gavin, and all the fictional farters on the show, we want to say, here's to you, bum fardo, wherever you are. We'll call that an even 40. We'll see you all next week.
What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcast.